0: It's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. And today we're going to go to Austria. It's a country we haven't been to on the show. There's a lot of wine being produced there, but a lot of it may be flying underneath your radar. Um, I was introduced to Wines from Austria from its signature white wine grape known as Gruner Veltner, which has become uh, certainly a, a darling on the set of uh, wine professionals and sommeliers and has been for a while. And I think it's becoming more uh, wildly, wildly and wildly available um, all across the country. And, but uh, there's a lot more to Austrian wine than just that one grape, too, and that's something that I need to remind myself of. So that's why I'm glad to have today on the show as my guest Melissa Sutherland. She's an import specialist for Winebow for the countries of Austria, Italy, and Hungary, but we're going to focus on Austria today. And um, you can find out more about Winebow at winebow.com. And my first question is um, Melissa, I was introduced to Gruner Veltliner as a, a very light, dry, refreshing kind of uh, oaky Chardonnay alternative. And um I was wondering if you could just talk about the popularity of that kind of Gruner Veltliner and then we'll delve into uh the the you know, the the world of Gruner Veltliner.
1: For sure. Hi. Well thank you for having me on. Um Firstly, I, you know, I want to say that um, uh, I like to think of, of Grüner Veltliner and, and making sense of Grüner Veltliner's multifaceted styles as, as, um, as, as, as into three categories. I like to think of it as sort of that modest style that, that you talked about, um, the snow oak, this light, this refreshing. It's kind of like uh, a, a, a welcome blast of acidity uh, is in the modest style, and then there's this monumental style that comes from another particular region, you could say, and then the mature style, and that gives you this. Really this great idea that Gruner-Betliner can age. And so, you know, you think of these sort of, like, three levels, and, and then you begin to think about, like, the different regions, and so the regional character and the soil type and the climate and the site's genetic material and the winemaker skill, and you're like, whoa, gruner yeah. has a lot of complexity going on here. You know, there's a lot to talk about here, and it deserves, like, serious attention. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Am I even saying the name of the grape right? Now I'm all paranoid. Should I just call it Gruner? Or how, do you, how, how, does it, how is it pronounced?
1: Um, I think that, so if you, okay, so you can say Gruner Vettliner, the, the V is like an F, right? So you can say Gruner Vettliner. In Janssen Robinson's uh, latest uh, tome that she pens with Hugh Johnson, The World of Atlas Wine, the 7th edition. And it is she a tome. Includes, yeah, it is a tome. She actually includes, in quotation marks, Groovy. Um I I don't really refer to it as that. Um, I'll just say Gruner or Gruner Vettliner.
0: I don't, I don't like Grüner Groo- V or Groovy, or, um, it's a little corny. Yeah, it's
1: yeah, it's like it's like the latest thing that I just learned. The the nickname for Savion Blanc is Savvy D.
0: Oh, I wish I could hear that. That is that is that is really <laughs> awful. I mean, if it brings people to the table of um, uh, great white wines of the world, I guess I should be all for it. But something about it, um, it makes <laughs> me think of like a heavy D or schooly D, like some like a <laughs> like some old eighties rap. But, um,
1: okay. Okay.
0: But but anyway, back to um, which I will just call Gruner. Um, so there's you know like that light and lively style, but there's also it can be a grape with uh, a lot of richness and texture, and one that can age for years. Can you talk about? Um, I mean, there's like couple, There's like three. Is it three levels? And one involves a, a lizard, right?
1: Sure. Sure, Yeah. Absolutely. Well. So specifically, that's the Vakal, and so the Vakal, if you will, is like the Mount Everest, if you will, of Grenadetina, right? And um, so. Um, the Vakau has various soils and 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 terraced vineyards, and the Danube sort of has thrust itself, you know, through this valley to create all sorts of different soil types. So, so you're going to get, you know, along this valley, um, multifaceted Grüner vatliners and. Um, this particular area is, um, uh, is, is, fabled and storied for some of the most monumental Grunovet leaners and some of the most ageable Grunovet leaners, um, that, that, uh, have, that, that we as, as wine drinkers and wine professionals have been exposed to. Um, I would say that, in terms of crafting um, the, the style of Grüner Wettliner in the Wackau, um, the members there, the winemakers there, they actually belong to a group called the Vinia of And it's a growers association. Um, so they don't actually belong to, if you will, a counterpart to like an appellation system. They have their own system of agreeing not to buy grapes uh, from anyone else and to express the, the purest, a uh, uh, um, uh, wine possible and so there are three levels that have been codified right um, so you have the um which is if you will um, the kind of light refreshing low alcohol wine for early drinking and then you have the feederspiel level um, which is a uh, uh, which is a crop of slightly r- riper grapes that have to be between 11.5 and 12.5 alcohol. And then you have Schmaragd, which is that local lizard, that green lizard. And um, these are the serious, uh, full-bodied wines with higher alcohol level and, of course, a lot of ageability. Um, Fiederspiel also is a level, that middle level, where wines can actually age as well. So sometimes people think of these three levels in the kind of German Pradekott system But it's not like that at all. These wines are dry, Mm -hmm. and um, and and they are marked by um, different pickings at different times of the harvest to correlate to alcohol and to correlate to body style.
0: And some of these wines, like like the smug, the top wines that are. You know, carry a you know carry a, a a significant price tag too. I mean, they're world beaters too when it comes to white wine. And wasn't there a tasting where they slipped in some Gruner into a white Burgundy Chardonnay tasting, and Gruner like kicked its ass.
1: So this is um, a situation where um, a really good example of looking back at Gruner Veltliner and knowing that Gruner Veltliner not only has the kind of multifaceted personality, of Chardonnay and, and Burgundy, um, but it has the ageability. And, of course, if you look at the price tag, because roughly, you know, most Gruner Veltliners from the Vachau, you know, unless they're
0: 30,
1: 40 years old, are very reasonable in a mm-hmm. restaurant or in a retail setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and just recently, last year, in, in New York, there was, it, there was a tasting called um, Austrian Monuments, Four Decades of Gruner-Vettliner, and it was an amazing showcase of 40 years of, of really learning how, how Gruner-Vettliner can age.
0: So, we're talking about different levels of Gruner, there's like the light and lively, and there's the very serious and age-worthy, but also, um, there's sparkling versions too, and are there sweet versions as well?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a grape that can be um, uh, uh, expressed um, in many different styles of wine, mostly handled best with, uh, with producers that make dry wines. I, I think that, that uh, the best sparkling and, um, and sweet wines are from producers that really have a firm understanding of the grape itself.
0: And who are some of those sparkling wine producers I should look out for?
1: At Winebow, we have a, a, a sparkling, uh, an Austrian sparkling house, and that's all they do is they, they really focus on sparkling wine. Here are the Ziggety brothers. So Ziggety, uh, it's uh, it's their last name. It starts with an S. Uh, so uh, S Z I G E T I Ziggety, mm-hmm. and they make a sparkling Brunner um that is pretty amazing. Um, and there's another producer. It's not a Winebow producer, um, but it's a, 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 a producer that. I became acquainted with in my retail days called Steininger. and Steininger is a is a is a very um, a smart uh, sophisticated producer of sparkling Grüner Veltliner as well.
0: You mentioned the region of Wachau. Um, where is that? Like if I landed in uh, Vienna, um, how how far away am I from uh, from that wine region?
1: So we are um, in far eastern Austria. So mm. sometimes when people think of Austria, they think of Salzburg, which is way west. Mm-hmm. So we are, close to, we are close to Hungary. When you think about the wine growing region in Austria being far eastern Austria, close to Hungary, I also would like to talk about how at this point we are very far away from Germany. And where Austria and Germany share the same language, that is where the comparison sort of ends.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as a matter of fact, the wine growing region of Austria and the white wines in Austria have more actually in common in a lot of ways to the white wines of Italy, Northern Italy, Friuli, El mm-hmm. Plattige, the Veneto. So we are in Eastern um, uh, Austria, you land in Vienna and you could probably hop in a car and be in the Wachau maybe in about an hour and change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, not very far at all. But the really cool thing is that when you get to the Vatau, there are two other major white wine growing regions that are literally within 25 minutes of each other. And that's called, uh, those two regions are the Kremstau and the Koppau. And literally, you could spend three days touring three different regions and get a really, really good handle on the wines there. And then, of course, it's so cool and beautiful, you would just have to go and, like, picnic and and things like that as well, so.
0: Aren't there these super, like, modern-styled, like, architecturally slick wineries there, too, like tasting rooms and stuff? It seems like every time I look at an Austrian winery online, and I'm sure there's very traditional ones, too, but it seems like there's a ton of, uh, like, super slick, cool, modern architecture, too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, what's really cool is that I like this idea of winemakers really being in tune with, their built environment. And I think that, for instance, Fred Loimer, uh, one of our, you know, uh, producers in, uh, winemakers, growers in the Comptau, um, has a, uh, architecturally speaking, a very sort of contemporary winemaking facility. Um, and I think that pressing um, a minimalist approach, um, and his idea of working with this architect to create a very stark, minimal environment really speaks to his philosophy as a biodynamic winemaker and of course you know we're in Austria we're like there's, there's you know centuries of history with winemaking and with art and with I mean of course you know the monasteries there as well. Um, I think that this idea of creating and building things that somehow fit within the, the the history and those the centuries of all of that art somehow um is not so modern and not so contemporary. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to, to to see that sort of contemporary architecture, I feel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um we've talked a lot about Gruner Valenair, but there's certainly a lot more um white wine grapes of, of, of note there. One that I've really enjoyed is um, the Rieslings from Austria, and I've written about a couple of them, including Loimer, on my blog at jamesonfink.com. Actually, I wrote about it pairing it with a, a green bean casserole pizza made by a <laughs> recipe from uh, <laughs> Natalie Slater from Bacon Destroy, which happens to be vegan. So uh, Austrian uh, Riesling and vegan green bean casserole pizza. Put that, put that on your mm-hmm. list. But um, – Talk to me. What makes Austrian riesling distinct from, let's say, Germany or or anywhere really? What makes it distinct? What are you getting yeah. when you usually when you pick up a bottle?
1: Well, first of all, for, for the most part, um, uh, the, the, the the big difference is that Austrian riesling. Is dry. Can we all say that in unison? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so we're looking at uh, a wine uh, that is fermented and t- to dry, where where residual sugar is, is, is low, and so the residual sugar would be, of course, if the fermentation was stopped a little earlier, or if you know grapes are, are picked later. But um, so uh, fermenting until dry. Another thing is the soils are hugely varied. In the Comptal for instance, when we are talking about Fred Weimer, um, there's a lot of primary rock uh, there. Um, there is slate and nice. Um, so nice is this metamorphic rock. And um, these, these, these areas of primary rock are um, great areas, um, are very good, um, poor soil conditions uh, that in a lot of ways uh, don't store a lot of water, right? And so when it warms up and cools down quickly with those temperature fluctuations, um, these wines uh, then result into sort of these delicate, finely chiseled and and, and kind of nervous and delineated wines. Uh, So for me, highly chiseled wines that, Rieslings that happen to be dry um, and also medium bodied, I think go a long way. Um, of giving a lot of pleasure when it comes to, like let's say, vegetables or vegetarian dishes or sort of not meat dishes. I mean, clearly they go well with all sorts of pork products and all mm-hmm. in the very, like, pork, uh, renditions of pork in Austria. Um, mm-hmm. But um, there is a lot of tension and a lot of interest in and in, in true Riesling character that comes out in those Rieslings from the Kampau, the Kremstahl, and, of course, the Van Kau. Um uh the vodka being a very, very special place for Riesling as well as gruner
0: So, uh Austrian Riesling, whether you're vegan or paleo, uh it will it will match your preferred <laughs> lifestyle and cuisine and uh ethical beliefs.
1: Absolutely, because everyone listening to your despite everyone listening to the podcast right is is probably our omnivorous drinkers, even if they're not like you know omnivorous eaters,
0: right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I I try to. I I may maybe I'll do a paleo show. I've done a I've done a ve- well a half vegan show. <laughs> <laughs> but um, speaking of, of food, um, one thing I was reading about was asparagus. And I really, um, I'm really i really sick of people saying like, oh, it's so hard to pair wine with asparagus. I think it's just an old saw and a crutch and it's not true and it's lazy. And it's, I can't believe people are still teaching that. But um, there's a real affinity for um, uh, asparagus in Austria and to drink uh, white wine with it. Can you talk about um, uh, Austrian wine and asparagus and their affinity?
1: Sure. You know, I, I, I wish I could, actually like nail down the science behind this. And I know there are quite a few people that have probably done that, but um, you know, I would say that for the most part with Gruner-Vetliner, the character of Gruner-Vetliner, its fruit character um, and this kind of herbaceousness and this kind of, with a little bit of a citrus and orchard fruit. And and of course it's acidity and its texture kind of just kind of match I would say they complement each other. And I think oftentimes people think of uh, people are challenged with asparagus because um, they're thinking of it too much as, as a contrast. Mm-hmm. And and so Grüner Wiener and asparagus just have this uh, affinity to each other. And I think it works because of the phenolics in Grüner Wiener and it's aromatic uh, expressions and um, and it's it's inherent herbaceous uh, character.
0: Yeah, I agree. What are some um what are a couple other white wine grapes that are maybe a little more under the radar from Austria that you think um, we should be checking out and drinking?
1: I kind of geek out over this grape called Rotorvetliner. No, Rotorvetliner has nothing to do with Wodervetliner. Uh-huh. But what's kind of cool about it is that if you know about Grüner Veltliner, then you can at least you can at least say, "Oh, hmm, nah, that's intriguing. Hmm, I know Grüner." So they have nothing to do with each other. And as a matter of fact, Roterbeller is a red skin grape that is vinified white.
0: Huh, it's like, so, Roto, like Roter, like
1: uh, R O T E R. R O T E R.
0: Okay. Dealt with that.
1: And uh yeah. so it's antified white and so a number of producers make it. My favorite producer, uh yeah, produce it, um uh my favorite producer is Matlaroff. I, I think they're, the, they're sort of like uh their rotor vetliners are sort of the apex of the expression. And um so for me, um I enjoy white wine uh um uh, very, very much, oftentimes more so than red. And I find rotor vetliner very, very intriguing in terms of its aromatics and Literally, if I would taste it with my eyes closed, it really comes across as, as a red grape. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's a delight to drink. And I think what's also fun, I mean, maybe not so much under the radar, but um, just adding more of this to your life is are the, are the red wines of Austria. Just, they're so characterful. They have so much um, to offer in terms of um, uh, fruitiness from the Zwei the kind of freshness and the complexity from Blau-Frankish and then the velvety nature of St. Lawrence. And um, and I just feel that that trilogy, that workhorse of those three grapes are just a lot of fun to drink, a lot of fun to explore. And if you're into the diversity of the globe and what the globe is offering you in terms of wine, Definitely, ground zero for red wine in Austria is Burgenland, and you need to get your hands on some of
0: those wines. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Zweigelt, um, and I guess it's sort of like Gruner, where um, I'm only aware of. I mean, I love like the super fresh, easy drinking ones that come in a liter that you slightly chill. Um, what like if people drink like, let's say, if I was uh, like a, I don't know a Pinot Noir drinker or something, Zweigelt, is that something I would I would dig or should explore?
1: If you're a Pinot Noir drinker, I would drink St. Lawrence.
0: Okay. And what is St. Lawrence?
1: St. Lawrence is um, a a, a, a native grape, and um, it really has this velvety character. It has a deeper, deeper, um, I would say, fruit expression. Um, The fruit kind of lends itself to maybe more of a a uh, 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 severe Coast sonoma drinker in some ways um, kind of maybe meets a little bit of uh, 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 Pinot Nero from Italy as well. So you get that kind of earthiness that comes out too as opposed to just fruit. Um, if you like Gamay um, and you really like Cru um I would drink Blau Frankish. Blau Frankisch can also, for some producers, like one of our producers Paul Ock, Really, also come off as very much influenced by Burgundy in a lot of ways. And then Zweigelt, I just I convinced a few people of this, but Zweigelt for me, if you're really into Chianti Classico or like mm-hmm. true real deal Sangiovese, I think of Zweigelt in that same way as Sangiovese.
0: Yeah, and then is it like uh, let's say Riesinger, or Grüner Veltliner, where there are sort of levels of different red wines? I mean, it's not just uh, it's not just Zweigelt as a, a Daily drinker, kind of simple, fun, fresh wine. I mean, you there talk about like sort of like the like what's happening on sort of the upper end of red wines in Austria, and are people getting uh, excited about those?
1: For sure, yeah, um, yeah. So Paul Ox, who I mentioned, as, uh, we have two producers from Bergenland, Paul Ox and Gernot Heinrich. Um, uh, Heinrich is a sort of red wine master. That's pretty much all he does. He, he makes a bit of, of, of white. Um so what we're looking at here um are uh both Blaufrankisch and uh expressions of Light that are coming from single vineyards. So um in Bergenland there are a few appellations. Um and so for Blaufrankisch, Gernot Heinrich is making single vineyard uh, expressions um from the Lyceberg. And so the Lyzeberg is right near this shallow lake called uh, the, Nois- uh, the Noisiedel, this area of Bergamon is the last remnants of the Alps. So you get these gentle sloping hills that are full of limestone and clay and are just absolutely possessing of great genetic material to to create um, a very specific uh, expression-worthy uh, Blaufrankisch and Zweigel. Now this is definitely on, on the upper tier uh, when it comes to these 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 grapes, so you can have everyday drinkings like yelp and then you can have and, and Blaufränkisch, and then you can have of course, if you think about it in the appalachian village way of thinking about burgundy, you can have that as well
0: mm. and have you had the chance to drink a lot of uh, like like older vintages or how, how do these red wines age?
1: yeah yeah so um, i haven't i've actually had more white wine, uh, older white wine mm-hmm. than I have red wine. Um, and I would say that I've only had reds from Bergenland that, that have been about 10 to 12 years old. And I would say during this time um, and over this course of time that there's been a, still a lot of experimentation. There's been a lot of experimentation with barrels in uh, barrique and toast levels. So I think that a number of producers are coming into their own. I would I would just say this as well, that what's really exciting about Austria is that most of the producers that we think of as world-class leading producers in their regions are relatively young. They're between the ages of, let's say, 26 and 50.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we're dealing with a very young crop of of winemakers that have clearly a number of vintages under their belt, but they have so many more to go. And so uh, the ageability of, of Blau-Frankish for me is it, very interesting. And, and But again, I only have about 10 years, right. 10, a decade. Uh, uh, people are not going to find much out there um, in terms of um, older wines as well. Um, but they're bu- being built now. For the long haul. So it's going to be a very interesting time for us drinkers. You know, the next 20 years is going to be amazing.
0: So, very cool. And one last thing when you talk about this younger generation is that it seems like a lot of them, I don't know if it's maybe, obviously, you can tell me more, but is Austria like really focused on organic and biodynamic uh, ways of grape growing and farming and biodynamic being sort of like a very holistic uber organic, somewhat mystical system, um, grape growing. I've, <laughs> I've talked to uh, Catherine Cole, who wrote a book about biodynamics in Oregon, and you can uh, find that on my blog at com too. But um, is, it, is there something about Austria? Is there, is, there, is, it, is there a much more emphasis on organic and biodynamic um, grape growing and winemaking there?
1: For our producers um, at, at WineBow we have a we have a very uh, tidy uh, um, stable of world class winemakers, and um, a nine, and um, more than half are practicing biodynamically and organically. And and for them, you know, for their philosophy, um, it is about um, first and foremost quality. Uh, it's not about anything else. Mm-hmm. It's not about dogma. It's not about Following Steiner to a T, it's it's really about can I practice? Can I have a set of standards that I can practice that lead to the quality that I'm looking for? The focus is on the products and the processes within agriculture, and they're constantly searching for this the high quality that is associated with the connection uh, for um, uh, this connection with earth and with nature and with of course themselves and their intervention as humans. I don't know if anything can ever be, you know, natural, for instance, because the very nature of winemaking is is not. It's an intervention. But um, but there is a... Fred Loimer and Gernot Heinrich and Paul Ox, these producers um, really um, look at um, their land and in terms of biodiversity and plant care and their compost management. And, you know, their, their preparations. And then, of course, you know, they're working manually uh, in the vineyards. And, and then, of course, in the cellar and the diversity, of course, in the cellar with barrel and wood and concrete and clay. And so um, quality first and then respect for, you know, nature and, and, and themselves. And, and I would say that in, in terms of wine production, we can think of Austria as just being a little bit bigger than the Loire. Mm-hmm. Valid in terms of of total wine production. I think it goes to um, to their credit that they want to um, really um, practice organically and biodynamically in their community. And I would say that, sure, I would say that it's 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 probably the best way to be producing wine in uh, um, in, in under certain conditions and in those conditions as well.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, exciting things going on, and you're right, it's a younger generation, and, you know, when I think about what we've talked about in Austrian wine, you know, people can get involved in it and get interested in it and explore it and start out with those uh, light and lively Gruner Vellners, but like you said, um, there's that's just the tip of the iceberg, so... Um, Thank you very much for being on the show, Melissa. I encourage everyone to go out and buy Gruner, Veltliner and Riesling and explore the red wine grapes. And um, you can find a lot more information about uh, these Austrian wines at winebow.com. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Melissa.
1: Thank you. It was such a delight.